Very glad to see that there's such a robust interest in Oscar Wilde. Uh, and perhaps Benjamin Disraeli, we'll see. Uh, Tom Cable is here representing the English department's interest in uh, Oscar Wilde. Uh, we also want to uh, thank the HRC. It's our connection with the HRC that we're able to have literary as well as historical and political topics in this group. And today it's Sandra Mayer who is speaking about the novels of Benjamin Disraeli and Oscar Wilde. Uh, she is a research fellow in English literature at the University of Vienna and in Oxford at Wolfson College. She is the author of the book Oscar Wilde in Vienna. Uh, and she's now writing another book that will explore uh, literary celebrity and the politics from the 19th century to the present. Sandra, we look forward to this. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Roger, for this extremely kind introduction. And uh, it is absolutely overwhelming to speak in front of such a wonderful audience. Thank you so much for spending uh, the time in this way on a, on, a, on a hot Friday afternoon, which is probably the thing to do. Um, now, I would like to thank Roger and uh, the entire British Studies team, and uh, also especially Marion. Where is she? Where's, where's Marion? For, for really taking so much time and effort and putting so much time and effort into making me feel so incredibly welcome here. And it is definitely a great honor and a great joy to be back in Austin and uh, to talk about some of my research and uh, which, kind of, which kind of brings together Oscar Wilde and Benjamin Disraeli. Now, I already said this over lunch, but it is actually something I would like to repeat uh, because I think that the British Studies Seminar fulfills an important function as a port of call for the many wandering scholars like myself who cross the center's threshold each year and who might otherwise feel slightly sort of uprooted and disoriented. So I think, you know, this is really a place that brings people together, people of all backgrounds, uh, of all disciplines, and literally from all over the globe. And I think this is really a unique uh, institution. And therefore, it is an enormous honor for me to be part of it and uh, to be talking about some of my research. And in a way, I was thinking today, it does feel a little bit like things coming full circle. It is certainly something I would not have dreamed of when many years ago, in the early 2000s, when I was still a student, I picked up one of the early Britannia volumes and I checked just before I left Vienna. It was the green, still more adventures with Britannia. And uh, I remember being hugely impressed by this. And so obviously it's uh, wonderful to be back so many years later and to be part of this fantastic project. Um, now, I will have to slightly disappoint you. Now, the novels of Benjamin Disraeli and Oscar Wilde are not going to feature all that much in this talk. As you can see, celebrity is going to make an entrance here and uh, uh, performances of the celebrity self in a kind of ill-matched looking pair that is Benjamin Disraeli and Oscar Wilde, but as I'm going to argue, the two have got more in common than initially meets the eye. 
Now, when it comes to performing the celebrity itself, I think we would all agree that someone like Oscar Wilde, whose uh, papers, of course, are amongst the most popular and therefore also digitally available collections preserved right here at the Harry Ransom Center, must count as a true virtuoso player whose genius for self-fashioning and self-advertising turned him into a well-nigh universally recognized figure, actually, long before he made his name as a writer. More than that, his preparedness to turn himself into a brand and to make himself available for consumption paved the way to his status as a global cultural icon of and for our time. Someone whose works and whose name and image have been endlessly reappropriated, reinvented, reworked across media, across genres and literally from every conceivable ideological angle, which is something that I think attests to Wilde's remarkable ability to be everything to everyone and uh, also to serve as a kind of projection screen, I think, for a nearly inexhaustible array of agendas. Now, Oscar Wilde certainly is, without doubt and quite clearly, one of the most marketed English language writers. Um, <coughs> Obviously, someone who, alongside Shakespeare, Austen and Dickens, has become a public property, feeding a never-ending Oscar Wilde industry, as it were, um, of literary criticism, of biography, of uh, uh, television, film, um, all sorts of things, uh, as well as, of course, the more mundane realms of popular entertainment culture. And I mean, mind you, the examples that I put up here on this slide only represent a tiny selection of the most recent appropriations of the so-called wild myth, yeah? and uh, which of course is attested to by the fact that he has conquered the more mundane arenas of popular entertainment and consumer culture, with his name and image being used to just about sell anything from luxury fountain pens to literary toys like this Oscar Wilde action figure that you can see up here uh, to East Anglian ale which is one of the more recent examples that I came up with and I think we could find dozens if not hundreds of more curious examples if we just kept digging and browsing the web. Um, anyway so while Oscar Wilde's turbulent lives and afterlives bear all the recognizable hallmarks of modern celebrity including scandal commodification and multimedia reproduction. Benjamin Disraeli, statesman and novelist, and of course today primarily remembered as one of the defining political figures of Victorian Britain, uh, and here we've got him in his famous portrait by John Everett Millay that was finished after his death, might at first glance seem to be an odd bedfellow in this context. And yet, in 2016, a small temporary exhibition display at Hewenden Manor, uh, which is uh, Disraeli's former country estate near High Wycombe in Buckinghamshire, which was acquired by Disraeli in 1848, but is now owned by the National Trust, was actually dedicated to Disraeli, the celebrity. Well, there you go. So this exhibition display was centered around a handful of objects from the Hewenden collections that would 
all sort of shed a light on one specific aspect of the Israeli's celebrity status, such as, for instance, um, a presentation copy of his last published novel, Endymion, which came out in the wake of his second term in office as prime minister in 1880. And it is actually inscribed and dedicated to the Israeli by his publisher, Thomas Longman. Now, it was a novel for which the Israeli received at least for the standards of the day, a staggering advance payment of £10,000, roughly equaling uh, something like a quarter of a million US dollars in today's money. And again, it's probably nothing compared to what some people receive today. But in those days, it was believed to be, at least by his publisher, the largest sum ever paid for a work of fiction. And it was certainly only the second novel published by a former prime minister. Now, the first novel published by a former prime minister was, of course, also by Disraeli. And his first post-premier novel, Lothair, came out in 1870, and it was a similarly extraordinary literary coup. And there is a, a scrap of paper preserved amongst Disraeli's papers in the Bodleian Library, uh, which I had the pleasure to unearth. And so I spent some time there working my way through those hundreds and hundreds of boxes. And leaders to say, you can spend the rest of your life there, which uh, is not what I intended to do, but it is certainly something that um, it would be a lifetime's work and not even that. But anyway, I came across a little scrap of paper which uh, looks like this. And it is actually quite an astonishing document of authorial self-assertion and pride because it lists in Disraeli's own handwriting some of the items and commodities that have been named after the hero and the heroine of his then newly published novel, Lothair and Corisande. And you've got a very eclectic mix here. Yeah? You've got, for instance, Mr. Stevenson's Colt. You've got uh, a Mr. Malloy's song. You've also got a Greenwich ship that was named after Lothair, apparently. A Lothair galop, a Lothair perfume, a Lothair street. So it really gives us an indication of some of the dimensions of the Lothair mania that was triggered by the publication of this book. And then if you take a look at the right-hand side column, you'll find Corisande, Baron Rothschild's filly, which, if we are to believe, some of the telegrams preserved amongst Disraeli's personal papers wasn't actually doing so badly in the race courses. <laughs> but anyway, the object therefore very much alludes to Disraeli's literary celebrity status and the fact that to this day Disraeli remains the only British Prime Minister who both started off and ended his career as a, a highly prolific author of no less than 17 novels. Um, I mean, mind you, these days anything is possible in British politics, uh, which has sort of disintegrated into uh, madness and chaos. Um, but it is interesting that uh, these days there is another novel-writing prime minister who, uh, in his own personal self-mythologization, not coincidentally citing both Disraeli and 
Churchill amongst his literary and political forebears, who is at the helm of British politics, or well, at least tries to be. Um, now, I'm not sure if anyone here in this room is familiar with Boris Johnson's literary masterpiece, which is entitled 72 Virgins, a Comedy of Errors, published apparently in 2004, um, which is, uh, mind you, I haven't read it, so this is all secondary knowledge. Um, it's apparently a hostage thriller with a group of suicide bombers targeting the visiting US president, who can only be saved, apparently, by a bicycle-riding, tousled Tory MP. Surprise, surprise. Um, anyway, uh, we won't go into that. A commentator in The Guardian has said that all extant copies of the book should be quietly and mercifully be destroyed. So I think that should be the end of it here. Um, right, what else was there in this exhibition display? There was also a pair of political cartoons from Punch as representative of um, political celebrity culture growing from the mid-19th century onwards when party politics and party ideologies began to be increasingly personified through party leaders who became the subject of a plethora of commercially produced visual and material representations such as cartoons, caricatures, uh, but then all sorts of other paraphernalia, uh, commemorative plates and mugs and Staffordshire figurines in order to forge a more effective bond between those leader figures and uh, a gradually expanding electorate. Now, in the course of his career, Disraeli featured in over 280 of those cartoons, which designed for a mass audience and very much bridging the areas of art, politics and popular culture were hugely influ influential in raising his public profile and in shaping his reputation. And there's actually a folder amongst Israelis' uh, personal papers that is entitled Humorous News Cuttings. And uh, they span examples from the 1830s to the 1870s. And the assumption, of course, is that he started collecting these uh, uh, little scraps of paper and these caricatures. And then later on, they got collected by his private secretaries as a means of keeping some kind of control or at least knowing how he was being perceived by the public. Um, now, many of those punch cartoons were actually produced by John Tenniel, the famous illustrator of the Alice book. And so the uncanny Disraelian resemblance borne by the traveller in uh, the white paper suit sharing a railway carriage with Alice would not have been lost upon readers of Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass, which came out in 1871. Now, actually, some scholarship has focused quite extensively on the ways in which um, these cartoons sometimes reflect the rampantly anti-Semitic representations of Disraeli's Jewishness. And this is something that relates to another item on display, namely Disraeli's seal stamp bearing his crest, which made its first appearance in the early 1840s, and which bears an image of the Sicilian castle or the Sicilian tower as a tribute to Disraeli's Sephardi Jewish lineage. And this points us towards two things. First of all, it points us towards the exotic appeal of the Israelis' otherness. And second of all, it also points us towards the way in which romanticized or glamorized versions of this otherness featured as uh, 
a key element in the fashioning of the Israeli self-image throughout his life, despite the fact that he had been baptized into the Church of England at the age of 13 together with his siblings. Um, and as a matter of fact, the current exhibition display at Huenden, starting this month, is dedicated to the Israeli's very complex religious identity, which as the curators of this exhibition claim is sort of um, positioned between two faiths, you know, the Israeli's life as a Jew and a Christian. So uh, this is an exhibition currently open and running until June next year. Now, all of these objects are linked to the Israeli celebrity status because they flag the anomaly of his life and career, which transgressed uh, contemporary norms of categorization and have lastingly rendered him the most unlikely Victorian prime minister, which is as he's being marketed by the National Trust. So this is the banner that greets visitors as they enter the grounds of Huendon Manor. It's certainly true that his mercurial public image captured the popular imagination, and not least Oscar Wilde's, who's uh, 50 years younger, um, and with whom he's got decidedly more in common than a posthumous career as a testimonial for alcoholic beverages. And so this is the uh, uh, Benjamin Disraeli hue and an ale with which you can fortify yourself before or after taking a tour of Huenden. But in any case, in 1886, five years after the Israeli's death, Wilde was asked to review two then newly published copies or two then newly published editions of uh, Disraeli's correspondence. And that is a crucial moment also in Wilde's career. I mean, he's trying to sort of reinvent himself and transform his image from um, the kind of high profit of the aesthetic movement and turn himself into a critically acclaimed writer with serious uh, uh, literary credentials. Now, in this review, he noted admiringly, Lord Beaconsfield plays a brilliant comedy to a pit full of kings and was immensely pleased at his own performance. He began by leading Mayfair as a dandy. He ended by leading the House of Commons as a diplomatist. His life was the most brilliant of paradoxes. Like many of his contemporaries, Oscar Wilde was clearly struck by the ways in which the Israeli's image combined the roles and personae of best-selling novelist, uh, Jewish-born upstart, political opportunist, uh, flamboyant dandy, an icon of conservative politics in quite a remarkable feat of fluently migrating between different social fields and contexts. Like many others, Wilde also remained puzzled by the elusiveness of his reputation, which certainly acted as a model for someone who, as an Irishman and as an aspiring literary celebrity, in many ways shared Disraeli's outsider status, his Byronic dandyism, his rhetorical skills, his mastery of the quotable epigrams, as well as his quest for fame and acceptance amongst the English establishment. Now, both Wilde and Disraeli before him exploited and at the same time represented a new type of celebrity, which, as cultural historians of fame have convincingly shown, had made significant inroads into virtually 
every sphere of public life, I mean, including art, entertainment, <coughs> politics, royalty, at least from the late 18th century onwards, to such an extent that uh, one of the narrators in Wilkie Collins's novel The Moonstone, which was first published in 1868, by the way, also the year when Disraeli first became prime minister, notes with barely disguised incredulity. In our modern system of civilization, celebrity, no matter of what kind, is the lever that will move anything. And I think this comment points us towards the demographic, social, economic and technological transformations that contributed. If not, and we also need to caution ourselves against anachronicity when talking about celebrity in pre-20th century contexts, um, that contributed, if not to some kind of proto-democratic public sphere where everyone had equal access to participation, at least to a wider attainability of fame through dexterous image management, through skillful social networking and the cultivation of a notorious public persona. There's actually something to be said for the argument put forward by the historian Simon Morgan, who has studied the role of celebrity and personality in popular British politics between 1815 and 1867, um, especially figures like Richard Cobden and uh, uh, representatives of the Anti-Corn Law League, um, that we ought to look upon celebrity not so much as a product of modernity, but actually one of the key drivers of the modernization process itself, a process that goes hand in hand with the proliferation of mass markets and mass media, with revolutionary advances in communication, print, and of course, image reproduction technologies, the arrival and flourishing of consumer and commodity cultures and the exponential growth of literate mass audiences. Now, if we accept that these are the factors that aid the production and the consumption of celebrity, then the following extract taken from a 40-page character sketch of Disraeli that appeared in 1853 in the Edinburgh Review um, shed some light on the considerable amount of celebrity capital that had been accumulated by Disraeli at that point in the wake of his first term in office as Chancellor of the Exchequer. So what does it say here? If a prize were offered at Oxford or Cambridge for a dissertation on the question what individual from February 1852 to January 1853 has most occupied the pens, tongues and ears of Englishmen, the answer would be given by acclamation. The Right Honourable Benjamin Disraeli, late Chancellor of the Exchequer, is indisputably the man. His portrait was painted by one fashionable artist. His bust was taken in marble by another. What were called likenesses of him appeared in illustrated newspapers by the dozen. And, above all, he was placed in Madame Tussauds' repository, that British Valhalla in which it is difficult for a civilian to gain a niche without being hanged. Now, looking upon the Disraeli phenomenon with a mixture of disbelief and complete incredulity and also barely disguised, and in this case also, of course, politically motivated distaste, 
The passage, of course, very much reveals the intense mediatization, circulation and commodification of the Israeli's public image. And this slide here just gives you a kind of sketchy overview of some of the media visual, textual, material through which the Israeli's image circulated within the public sphere. I mean, from biographical sketches, literary reviews, to sheet music, caricatures, and uh, of course uh, uh, the uh, sort of obligatory uh, Staffordshire figurines and all kinds of commemorative plates and what have you. Now, entering the wider arena of popular culture was of course crucial in enhancing um, the scope of an individual's appeal, which became increasingly more important to politicians in the course of the 19th century, uh, uh, as, as they needed to forge this bond with, with expanding electorates. But it also entailed risks, and foremost among those risks is, of course, the loss of control over the meanings attached to one's name and image as it becomes a collective construction of journalists, of artists, of satirists, engravers, entrepreneurs, and of course, a wide range of different audiences. Now, few notable 19th century public figures exemplify this fateful interplay between self-invention and appropriation more poignantly than Oscar Wilde whose carefully staged performance of the self was very much attuned to the needs and desires of an increasingly pervasive Victorian celebrity culture. Now, the fact that his celebrity state has very much preceded his success as a writer identifies Wilde as, one could almost say, a prototypical modern celebrity, which is disparagingly described by Daniel Borstin as a person who is known for his well-knownness, a public persona whose renown is founded upon notoriety, perhaps even the whiff of outrageousness rather than a specific type of talent, of merit or achievement. And that comes into being primarily through the intense circulation in the media. So there's still this idea, yeah, uh, which of course is still prevalent now, this idea of celebrity primarily being a product of the media, of the mass media as that. Um, now, Oscar Wilde's self-publicizing performance act is, I think, quite strikingly uh, uh, um, encapsulated and visually encapsulated in this iconic painting that you might be familiar with, which is actually called The Private View at the Royal Academy, 1881. Uh, by William Powell Frith, uh, recently sold at auction to a UK collector who's apparently planning to make it available to the public. And uh, here, of course, we see Oscar Wilde. So the would-be poet, the dandy aesthete, is, of course, a prominent presence here amongst uh, this panoramic vision of all the great and the good of late Victorian fashionable society um, that we've got here. And the painting has very often been read, and I would very much agree, as a, a satirical commentary on the forces at play in the production and consumption of celebrity. 
Now, most of the individuals in this painting have actually been identified. And uh, we've got representatives of some of the traditional elites in here. We've got politicians, we've got clergy, we've got aristocracy. Um, we've also got uh, some of the most iconic actors of the Victorian age. And I'm just going to sort of very uh, sketchily point into their direction, Ellen Terry and Henry Irving. Uh, we've got artists, John Everett Millet here in the foreground, scrutinizing the work of some of his um, rivals, one imagines. Then uh, here we've also got Frederick Leighton, the president of the Royal Academy, uh, some of the giants of Victorian literature, for instance, um, Robert Browning and uh, Anthony Trollope, who's sort of suspiciously eyeing uh, this sort of self-promoting upstart here who's preaching to this crowd of starstruck, largely female admirers. And we've also got representatives of as I would say, this sort of newish type of celebrity, self-promoting social climbers like Oscar Wilde or uh, Lily Langtry, a professional beauty uh, known in her day um, as an aspiring actress, but probably better known as a mistress to the Prince of Wales. In any case, I think the painting here presents us with a young Oscar Wilde in a formative moment of authoring his celebrity as uh, he invents himself as the self-declared apostle of the aesthetic movement. Now, uh, quite clearly absorbed in an act of blatant uh, self-display, Wilde here willingly makes himself available for consumption and he turns himself into an artifact, he turns himself into uh, an object to be studied, to be gazed at, to be scrutinized in much the same way as the paintings on the wall. So the important thing, of course, is to go there to see, but even more important, to be seen very clearly. Now, Wilde's posed as this self-styled arbiter of taste and an eccentrically dressed, quick-witted conversationalist was certainly part of a carefully choreographed self-advertising campaign and very much transformed this young nobody into a somebody. And this transformation, I would argue, was very much facilitated by the advent of a public culture that no longer viewed lineage, wealth or feats of heroism as the exclusive and the necessary cornerstones of public preeminence, but instead rewarded an entrepreneurial spirit and genius for self-fashioning, for self-branding and well-managed mass-mediated visibility. Now, a lot of accounts of sort of uh, Wilde's transformation into this iconic figures have very much focused on the spectacular success of Oscar Wilde's North American lecture tour in 1882 and 1883, uh, which I'm sure many of you know was instigated by uh, the impresario Richard Doyley Cart as a publicity stunt that would help him to promote the New York City uh, uh, premiere production of the Gilbert and Sullivan operetta Patience. And it was very much a turning point in Wilde's career as Wilde became an artifact of consumption, whose name and image was traded through all kinds of different media, I mean, through photographs. We're all familiar with the iconic series of photographs produced by Napoleon Cerrone, himself a celebrity, a celebrity photographer at the time. Uh, 
all sorts of illustrations, caricatures, sheet music again, and a string of aesthetic advertisements with Wilde's image and also the emblems of aestheticism being used to sell just about anything from cigars to uh, stoves, corsets, as you can see, and bosom beautifiers. Well, uh, that is very much left up to our imagination what that would have been all about. Um, now, a playful letter sent back home by uh, uh, Oscar Wilde in May 1882 very much reveals his awareness that in an emerging mass media society, celebrity capital could be made and unmade by the forces of commerce and media circulation. And uh, this letter here is accompanied by quite a charming hand-drawn illustration uh, of Wilde's view from his window at that point. So here he says, I am now six feet high, my name on the placards, printed, it is true, in those primary colours against which I pass my life protesting, but still it is fame, and anything is better than virtue's obscurity. Even one's own name in alternate colours of Albert Blue and Magenta and six feet high. <laughs> Now, Wilde's humorous dismissal of virtue's obscurity in this case anticipates one of the most famous epigrams from the picture of Dorian Gray, his only novel, whose timeless appeal, I think, can partly be explained through the perceptive meditations that it makes on uh, uh, the modern condition of fame and celebrity. For example, when Lord Henry muses, there is only one thing in the world worse than being talked about, and that is not being talked about. <laughs> so the fact that this novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray, with its heady mix of celebrity, sensationalism, uh, scandal, and of course autobiographical revelation, is likely to have drawn inspiration from Disraeli's own literary debut, Vivian Gray, which was a silver fork potboiler that caused quite a sensation when it was first published anonymously in 1826, because it was thought that the author must have access to all the glittering social circles of the rich and the beautiful that were being described, very much indicates that Wilde had his own models to look up to and sought his forerunners amongst fictionalized, self-fashioning dandies and aspiring men of letters. And this becomes particularly obvious when we look at the letter that Oscar Wilde wrote, again from his American lecture tour to George Curzon, the future Viceroy of India, whom he knew from his days at Oxford. And uh, in this letter, he describes the sensation of being a universally fated literary lion as follows. As for myself, I feel like Tancred or Lothair. I travel in such a state, for in a free country, one cannot live without slaves. Now, the tongue-in-cheek quality of this uh, comment aside, um, it makes sense particularly when you view it in connection with uh, a comment that he makes in another letter, three years later, again written to Curzon, who at that point was about to become Assistant Private Secretary to Prime Minister Salisbury, um, and where Wilde addresses him as you brilliant young Coningsby. Now, not coincidentally, 
Coningsby, Tancred and Lothair are the eponymous heroes of three of Benjamin Disraeli's novels published in 1844, 1847 and 1870 respectively. Um, and I'm going to come to that in a, in a little while but here I would also like to say that the novels and the fiction in Disraeli's case was very much a kind of workshop of the self for which he tried to negotiate and articulate his public and private identities at various points in his life. Um, and in these novels in particular, yeah, he tried to sort of, you know, provide people with an image of the ideal leader figure who would combine both action and creative imagination. So these novels present a kind of odd generic mix yeah, of Bildungsroman, of romance, of satire, fantasy, fairy tale, Romano clay, um, uh, uh, sort of kind of uh, odd uh, autobiographical elements that we find in those novels. And they very much chart the spiritual pilgrimages of uh, uh, dashingly handsome, fabulously wealthy, and uh, kind of naive but pure-hearted heroes, usually in the throes of political and constitutional struggle. And uh, sometimes I have to say it's also a bit of a struggle to work your way through those novels. But anyway, um, I think they also very much appealed to a reading public um, that was fascinated by this potent mix of Eastern mysticism. There's usually also some kind of Eastern wisdom figure that we find in those novels. Uh, political conspiracy. Then, of course, we also have uh, the kind of promise of autobiographical disclosure. Readers would feel that they would get some kind of privileged insight into the workings of a genius mind, a hard-headed politician. And, of course, uh, salacious gossip. This was a reading public uh, increasingly obsessed with sort of prying uh, or setting their eyes on uh, uh, the kind of glittering social world of the rich and the beautiful. Now, playfully ironic as they might be, whilst evocations of Disraeli's novels and their heroes suggest a certain affinity and acclaimed intellectual kinship with the novel writing statesman, who, not surprisingly, is also a looming presence by absence in the Frith painting. Now, obviously, it's a little bit hard to see from, from the back, uh, but you might have discovered Disraeli here. Now, as an ironic commentary on Victorian celebrity culture, this is a painting that sets up a contrast between um, celebrity as a kind of lesser type of fame that is commodified, that is transitory, that is ephemeral, that has no lasting cultural value, something that is dismissed by Carlyle in The Hero as Man of Letters as common lionism. And on the other hand, enduring posthumous greatness that is defined by genius, by merit, by heroism. Now, the former category is clearly represented by those self-promoting social climbers as Wilde and uh, Lily Langtry, while the other one is sort of reserved to those immortalized by art. And it is significant, therefore, that we've got not just one, but actually two portraits 
that are dedicated to Disraeli, and one of them is the famous portrait by Millet that I included in one of my opening slides that was actually completed uh, at the request of Queen Victoria and uh, included here in this uh, exhibition. Now, their presence marks the imminent transformation of Disraeli into a national and, uh, of course, a political icon, the centre of a myth-making cult of memorialization under the banner of the primrose, said to be Disraeli's favourite flower and about to become the populist emblem of Disraeli's political values. And it also goes back to the kind of iconography of a romantic gesture by Queen Victoria that was very much reported in the, in the papers at the time of Disraeli's death, that uh, a wreath of uh, wild primroses which the Queen had hand-picked on the lawns of Osborne House uh, was eventually placed on his grave at Hewenden when the Queen visited it four days after his funeral. Um, and of course at this point here, as you can see from the date, it shows the opening of the summer exhibition of the Royal Academy 1881. Disraeli had died only uh, a short while previously in April 1881. Now, what this indicates is also that many of Disraeli's contemporaries looked upon Disraeli's career as a straightforward and as a teleological progression from the chimerical celebrity of the literary lion to the venerable gravitas of this distinguished elder statesman. However, I think a more complex picture emerges when one takes into consideration how Disraeli responded to and also exploited the growing impact of celebrity culture in the 19th century, which can at least partly be explained by his lifelong indebtedness to romantic traditions of artistic self-conception and public image construction. Now, even though lacking um, an aristocratic title and a formal public school or university education, I think we need to keep in mind that Disraeli grew up in a literary household that was, uh, as, as he often said himself, I was born in a library uh, that was presided over by one of the most distinguished early 19th century English men of letters, namely Isaac Disraeli, who had made a name for himself through the curiosities of literature, actually quite a, a best-selling work at the time and whose circle of friends and literary acquaintances included people like uh, John Murray, Thomas Moore, Samuel Rogers, Lady Blessington, Edward Woolworth Lytton, Robert Southey, uh, William Godwin and also his daughter Mary Shelley. Now Mary Shelley professed to be an ardent admirer of the young Disraeli's novels and she certainly knew him well enough to send him a letter um, around 1837, the time of his maiden speech in Parliament as a newly elected member of Parliament for Maidstone. And it is quite an interesting letter. It is a small, it is a short letter that sets out a very interesting bait for Disraeli because she speculates on his ability to make a name for himself. Are you meditating your maiden speech? I wonder if you will be what you can be. Were your heart in your career, it would be a brilliant one. 
And we can only speculate what kind of impact yeah, such a, a taunt or a bait must have made on the Israeli at that time as he was about to reinvent himself yeah, as a, a respectable politician at the time, to kind of make that leap into social respectability yeah, from being regarded as this flippant and insubstantial literary lion. Now, hers and others' first-hand accounts certainly nurtured a lifelong fascination in Disraeli for Lord Byron, um, who, along with Shelley, is the kind of very thinly veiled subject of his 1837 novel Venetia, which has often been dismissed by critics as a, a kind of money-making operation to fend off the bailiffs. But I think something more complicated is going on in this novel. It is a very complicated biofictional engagement with his romantic idealism and the literary heroes of uh, his, his youth. Um, but in any case, Disraeli's European and Middle Eastern travels in the 1820s and in the 1830s basically amount to Byronic pilgrimages in which he tried to retrace his idol's footsteps and uh, where he eventually secured his most highly prized living Byronic souvenir. Uh, a man with the uh, glamorous sounding name of Giovanni Battista Falcieri, um, known as Tita, Byron's servant who was with him at the time of his death and who's very charmingly described here by the Israeli in a letter to his brother Ralph, uh, as someone whose mustachos touch the earth, withal mild as a lamb, though he has two daggers always about his person. Now, he clearly knew how to ingratiate himself with an impassioned Byronic acolyte as Disraeli by supplying him with a lock of, of, uh, of Byron's hair, which he claimed to have cut off the corpse at Missolonghi. And he was then duly whisked off and installed uh, at Isaac Disraeli's household in Bradenham, near High Wycombe as well. However, um, as Andrew Elfenbein has argued, Disraeli's admiration for Byron was more complicated than mere fan worship. And from Byron's career, he learned something about becoming a celebrity. At a time when fame was no longer the exclusive prerogative of those commanding high rank and power and position, ambitious young men like Disraeli could hope to build a career on uh, a capital of notoriety by performing an ever so slightly, perhaps even sexually risque pose of effeminate Byronic dandyism. Now, the young Disraeli, pictured here by Daniel McLeese for the uh, May 1833 issue of Fraser's magazine's gallery of illustrious literary characters, is of course a truly Byronic disciple with his elaborately coiffed uh, ringlets and uh, frills and, and laces and uh, he's sort of you know propped up against the mantelpiece here which is cluttered by uh, visiting cards and invitations and again the implication is that this is someone who's sort of a social networker and operator is trying to make a name for himself and then of course he's also appropriately accessorized with uh, uh, the oriental slippers and pipe and uh, the dagger in the background as a piece of home decoration. So his carefully cultivated act of Byronic self-fashioning served as a means of gaining public attention, but also as a kind of symbolic capital that would make up for the lack of more traditional forms of social capital. 
Moreover, his Byronic allegiance was firmly rooted in his self-identification with the boundary-breaking rebel genius who defied convention and morality and who transgressed quite clearly social norms. And indeed, Byron's scandalous celebrity served Disraeli as a kind of blueprint for turning the potential obstacle of his ethnic, his political, his social outsider status into an asset by reinventing himself as a chosen prophet hero and a visionary who would react to the considerable anti-Semitic sneers and antagonisms and adversities that he faced throughout his life with a kind of haughty, self-protecting arrogance. Now here, Disraeli's personal notebooks and diaries provide us with some intriguing insights into his self-affirming identity construction. So for example, this one here is his commonplace book from 1842, which is characterized by an almost obsessive need on the Israelis' part for name dropping. So it is a notebook that almost exclusively consists of long lists of names um, that he groups together into sometimes bizarrely themed categories that would allow for uh, astonishing psychological insights. Um, one of them is called eccentric <coughs> characters. Another one is called second class but remarkable. Um, there's one that's called dandies, female adventurers. Uh, one is interesting, uh, uh, one is, uh, I'm trying to, to uh, remember, um, it's, it's called averse to women whatever that means. Um, and one is actually also called literary political, in which the Israeli then includes fellow author come politicians as Thomas Macaulay and his friend Edward Bulwer-Lytton. Now this category here is interesting that you see in close-up. It's called spirit of the times and it's defined by the Israeli as follows. To know it, the spirit of the times and oneself, is the secret of success. And what follows is a long list, an eclectic mix of uh, 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 individuals, historical figures, I mean, without any kind of chronological order alongside uh, contemporaries. And they will include figures like Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Hadrian, Socrates, Lord Bacon, Shakespeare, and then he goes on, of course, Byron is there, Marlowe, Jesus, that's interesting, um, Napoleon, less surprisingly, uh, Leo X, Pope Julius II, uh, and so on and so on. So it's, it's, it's um, interesting, um, and uh, uh, some people have, have uh, or, or one could argue that this is, uh, what he's doing here is what Karl Pletch has described as uh, sort of living the autobiographical life, I mean living in anticipation of your own biographer, and it very much reveals Disraeli's need to place himself in a tradition of those convention-defying and boundary-breaking men, visionaries, transgressive Byronic heroes, as identity-shaping models that need to be emulated before, in the end, they can be overcome. Now, modeling himself on someone like Byron also meant embracing a double act of art and action. And Israeli's life and career strikingly reveal the close intersections of the literary and the political, as those, as Charles Richmond has called it, workshops of the self, for which he tries to shape his identity. 
Together with the celebrity enhancing possibilities of his otherness, they became mutually sustaining factors in the shaping of his reputation. Now, recent scholarship, including uh, Robert O'Kell's literary biography um, entitled The Romance of Politics, have shown how literature and politics represented closely interconnected arenas of self-invention and self-projection, from which he tried to gain public acclaim, but also to align the lives of action and uh, the lives of creative imagination. So the mutually formative influence of Disraeli, the literary celebrity, and the celebrity politician becomes obvious also when we look at this famous, um, well, not yet, not yet the famous cartoon, first, Disraeli's own self-fashioning. Yeah? This is a line from his mutilated diary in 1833, where he, it becomes obvious how he tries to align both literature and politics, where he says, poetry is the safety valve of my passions, but I wish to act what I write. My works are the embodification of my feelings. Uh, so that's how Disraeli, at a very early stage, views himself and the sort of central project of his life. Uh, but then this is what contemporaries, much later, when the Israeli becomes prime minister for the first time, make of it. So this is a cartoon published in Fun after the Israeli's first time rise to prime ministerial office in February 1868. And the caption, Vivian Gray sent for, of course, immediately establishes this close connection between the Israeli's life and work, which is based on the assumption that the uh, politically ambitious hero of the Israeli's first novel also represents a fictionalized version of himself, which is quite interesting and which is something that biographers have frequently picked up. This is actually something that goes back to a clever marketing ploy for his early novels. When keys were published, a claim to identify the real-life figures behind their fictional masks. And so this is a key to Vivian Gray. And as you can see, Vivian Gray here is identified with the author. And several scholars have actually argued that uh, the Israeli himself was behind the publication of those keys. And uh, certainly it was at his instigations that the publishers sort of you know, kept puffing his works. So by way of rounding off, I think I need to say a little bit more about Oscar Wilde, but uh, not much. Because Oscar Wilde, as you may know, of course, did not launch a political career, but he certainly tried out various other different avenues. And uh, of course, just as, Oscar, just as Israeli's Jewish origins forever defined his uh, public reputation, certainly Wilde's Irishness needs to be considered here. And it turned him not only into a shrewd observer of English society, but also, of course, a skillful social operator. Um, Wilde, much like Disraeli, actively participated in a kind of economy of spectacle and sensation. And the celebrity capital that Wilde accumulated was rooted in self-display, in performance, but also, I think, very uh, kind of negotiated and calculated uh, combinations of elitism and populism, art and fashion. 
Now, as a final quote here, I would like to present you here with uh, this passage from the Profundis, uh, of course, his long prison letter written in the final months of uh, uh, his, his two-year prison sentence for gross indecency, where he says, I was a man who stood in symbolic relations to the art and culture of my age. I treated art as the supreme reality and life as a mere mode of fiction. I awoke the imagination of my century so that they created myth and legend around me. And of course what captured the imagination of his own day also very much is what turns him into a cultural icon of and for our times. And so I think both Disraeli and Wilde very much embody the interplay of the two forces that create fame and celebrity, and that is person and process, agency and appropriation. Thank you very much.